So in this series that we're beginning today, we're, we're literally going to discuss what does it look like to live in a, as a contrast community. It, I, I believe that this video portrays this perfectly, that the lady who's obviously a Christian and then the gentleman who's obviously not a Christian, and he was so boldly will tell you, that he's not, and he also talks about this meaninglessness in the universe and how you just have to form your own thing and you have to live your own life. Much of the way that, that what you've seen displayed on the screen just now, much of the way that that was displayed is the reality of the world that we live in. And it's either you either have the mindset or the belief pattern or the worldview that Jesus, uh, that Jesus exists, that Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what it says that the scriptures said that he did, or not. So what we're going to see in this series is not just, a, uh, you know, just going through apologetically looking at, okay, let's look at the gospel to see if it's real. But what we're going to talk about, what we're going to see is there's a group of people who believed that it was real. They didn't presume anything else because they had seen things with their very eyes. They had experienced Jesus in certain ways. And how they, their experience with Jesus shaped the way that they saw the world. It shaped the way that, that they were able to stand firm in, in a culture that was against them. And they did it in amazing ways. We're going to see this actually for the next seven weeks. We're not going to be able to go all the way through First Peter in this time. Um, we're only going to go through chapters 1 and 2. And then after the first of the year, we're going to come back and we're going to finish up First Peter. And what we're going to see is how to live this life between the life between those of us who are in Christ, we are citizens of heaven, but yet we're still here as exiles, sojourners. We're scattered on this earth. How do we live in this life between? What does it require of us? So some questions that, that I hope to have answered by the end of this, at least I hope to have answered within, uh, within myself and, and those in, in my little circle, but I hope to have everyone or wherever it is that you're listening to this message from is this. These two questions. Does a Christian flee from the world? Is that what a Christian is supposed to do? Are we supposed to flee from the world? We're supposed to retreat. Are we supposed to fight the world, then become aggressive against it? Are we supposed to conform to the world? Or are we supposed to change it? It's a good question. And is there a deeper reason for the Christian's call as strangers in the world? And I hope to also convince you after the end of this talk that we are indeed, if, we're, if we are Christians, we are indeed strangers in this world. And that's the literal word that Peter uses at the beginning of 1 Peter. But if we're honest, when it comes down to this question, do we flee from the world? Do we fight it? Do we conform to it? Do we change it? You know, it's, it's difficult because... If we do what it is that God says for us to do, it's going to require us to stand firm, firm in our faith, and at times it's going to cause us to be weird with those around us, to be odd, sometimes to be at odds. But if we stand firm for our faith, we are the light in the darkness. There are going to be times where we are misunderstood. There may be times, I, I wish I could sugarcoat it for you, but I'm not. There may be times where if, you, if you, 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 you really dig into your faith and there's something happened in your workplace that, it's, that is antithetical, it's the opposite of the gospel, it's opposite of what the Bible says is true, there may be times where you have to quit your job. 
There may be times where you get fired for your job because you won't do something immoral. As a matter of fact, what 1 Peter talks about throughout this, the whole letter of 1 Peter, it's amazing. He talks about not just these theoretical or theological or spiritual things. He talks about what does it mean morally to be a Christian in an immoral world? What does it mean ethically? What does it require of me to actually live a biblical ethic in an environment that may not line up with my belief systems? What do I do? And we're going to see that sometimes we have to be weird. Sometimes we have to be weird. You see, some folks, they love to be weird, don't they? I mean, we all know that person or we've met that person. They have like the red hair, the blue hair, and they're like, they're like they don't even care. And it's like, do you realize you have blue hair? And it's like, it's obvious not na- obviously not natural. It's blue, you know? It's like there are some people who just like being weird, and that's awesome, and that's fine. The thing is, I can connect with those people because of this. Growing up, I, I felt like the weird kid. I felt like the kid who was odd in my school. I looked at all the cool kids, wasn't one of them. I looked at all the, at all the athletes, wasn't one of them. I looked at the football players, dad wouldn't let me be one of them right? Looked at all the farmers. I was like, well, I wasn't a farmer. I grew up in, a, in the rural city, but not even close to a farmer. I didn't know where to fit in, so I fit in with the misfits. It just so happened to be with a bunch of skater kids and a bunch of kids who didn't fit in anywhere else. And, and I felt weird, and yet I found community, and I found, I found acceptance in this other community because you know what? They felt weird too, and as people, we wanted to be weird. There's only thing more, uh, more difficult than being weird. It's being weird alone, isn't it? Being weird alone, that's like, that's like the worst of the worst. Yet we fear being weird because ever since first grade, we were taught that you just need to get in line. You need to color inside the lines. You need to just do what you're told. Just, just sit there. Just mind your own business. Just do these things. Just conform. That's what we've been, we've been conditioned to do and to believe ever since we were kids. Don't be weird because if you're weird, you're going to be on the outside and then it fosters all sorts of fear and, and concern. And then because of that, if you're, you, know, you fight that and you're like, I just don't want to be weird. You know, it, 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 again, it just fosters all sorts of fear. I had this, this kid, his name was Tim, and he was a skater too. And I, I envied Tim because, A, he was a better skater, and he had a half pipe at his house. He was the only kid in town who had a half pipe at his house, and it was in a barn, and it was great. I mean, it was just like a skater's paradise out there. It was amazing. And my parents never let me go there. I, I snuck there one time without them knowing. They still don't know. Uh, it's just going to be our secret. And it was great. So I went out to the country and got a ride out there. I'm all, I had no idea what to do, but I was just, I was amongst greatness. But the only thing that was even better than the way that Tim skated was his hair. And I loved his hair because like I connected with him because he was a skater and he was weird and I was weird and we were weird people. And, and really the only thing that was more weird than me was his hair. He had dreadlocks, like for real dreadlocks. And I was like, I want dreads. I want dreads. Like, and this was like my upbringing. I wanted this and my dad was like, nope, he wanted me to be this clean cut kid. And I was like, I don't want to be this kid. I want to be the dreadlocks. And then Tim did the unthinkable he actually cut his dreadlocks to where then it was a mohawk of dreadlocks. It was awesome. It was awesome. And I wanted that even more. And I was like, I want to be weird like you, you know? And it was, it was neat. And then eventually he shaved his head, and that was bad. Um, so then I just, I, I didn't know what to do. I was, I was hopeless. Anyway, I'm back. Here's the deal. 
Like sometimes we fear being weird for good reason. Because when we fear being weird, what we're doing is we fear that we're not going to be loved anymore and that we're going to be ultimately rejected from our community. We all, every single person, wants to be loved and affirmed, no matter who we are or where we are. We just do. Whether we're weird, not, not weird, whether wherever we fit in the spectrum of things. But here's what we have to risk. If, you, if you're a person who says, well, now you're calling me out and you're saying that I need to be weird at work, I realize this because maybe for you, maybe you haven't stood up for your faith and you haven't stood, stood firm in your faith in your workplace. Instead, you hid. You hid because you didn't want to be rejected. So in your hiding, well, here's, here's three things that I found in, in hiding. When people hide, usually they hide their potential. They do. They just hide their potential. They bury it. Because if I, if I work out this potential, it may bring about a change in me or it may bring about a change in someone else. So they hide their potential. Sometimes they hide their faith. Where before, you know, you just get saved and your faith is like on your sleeves and everybody looks at it. You got that, that glow like, i just been with Jesus. You have that. But then after a while, you get churched a while and you get tired a while. And maybe you don't read the Bible for a while and you don't pray for a while and you're not in community for a while. And then that, that light, it, it's just not as bright as it, what it used to be. And then, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're actually hiding your faith. Because then you don't have the confidence you haven't been standing firm in Jesus. You've been standing firm by yourself. And the other thing that I've found is people hide in their personalities. They hide their personalities or they hide in their personalities. It's as a way of deflecting from who it is that Jesus is calling them to be. And again, we've been conditioned to do this. We know that, that, that anytime you stand out, it's, it, it's a risk. Weird, being weird is risky. So we tend to hide. And even changing, like if you give your life to Jesus, I understand this too. When you give your life to Jesus, sometimes the call of Christ may be, it may be something that is, is just you know, directly to you that God calls you out of a certain situation where you have to make an ethical decision that's not going to be favorable in the workplace. Even with your family where you say, no, 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 I need to honor Jesus over you. And that, that change then can be risky again because we fear that we're going to lose that love and we fear losing that acceptance. And ultimately, we wrestle with these two questions. If I change, I may come across as weird. And if I come across as weird, will people accept me or reject me? What will they do? Will they, will they celebrate me? Will they celebrate the change in me? Or will they criticize me? All of these things are, are rooted in our fear of not wanting to be Rejected. You see, being weird and standing out, it seems to be at odds with our need of love and acceptance. It does. It seems so, so different. If I stand out, am I going to be loved? But as Christians, those of us who are Christians in the room or who are listening right now, we have already been accepted and loved by God. This should carry more weight in our beliefs and our practice of our belief than anything else. You have already been loved and accepted by God. The high call in a Christian's life is to help change the world. And Christians can't help change the world if they're consumed by trying to con basically to either conform to it or to just fit into it. You can't. That's just not the way it works. That's just not consistent with the Bible. What we're going to see this morning 
And we're just going to look at a couple verses. We're actually going to start out in 1 Peter 1 and 2. And then we're, going to, we're also going to read and not spend as much time on um, 1 Peter 5, 12 through the rest of the letter. And we're going to read this and we're going to bookend this letter because in it we're going to see who it was addressed to. We're going to see the environment that it, that it was written into. And we're also going to see um, of who wrote it. And, and all these things become important to understand um, everything that's going to be happening um, when we're talking about living this life between. So the setting of this passage, before we read this together, the setting sets the stage for this. We have to really understand what's going on here. This letter was written into a group of Christians, a small group of Christians, who were living under a tyrannical, powerful Roman ruler by the name of Nero that hated Christians. By hated Christians, I don't mean that he just hated Christians like, oh, get away from me, you know, we can't have, you know, the Ten Commandments at the courthouse, okay? Much greater than that. Let me give an example. It was very, it's very well known from even sources outside of the Bible. One of the things that Nero did in the persecution that was brought around that he did to Christians is he would crucify them. That's, that's not new. That had been happening for decades. Romans didn't invent that, that form of torture and death but they perfected it, and that's, of course, what happened to Jesus. So they continued that through the, the reign and the tyranny of Nero, where they would crucify a Christian, but then they took it to, he had them uh, take it to a new level. Then he had their bodies dipped in wax, and then he posted their bodies in his garden, and he would use their bodies as a way to light the path in his garden. That is the culture of which this is written into. And the reason why all of this hatred came about is because there had been a fire in the city of Rome. And at first, the Roman people thought that Nero did it. They're like, they, they knew that he had this lust for building things. He had a lust for power, but yet the city was already built. So he had this bright idea. It's believed that he had this bright idea. If there's a fire that is burnt, that burns the city, then he can build things in the way that he wants to. But because the fire broke out, and not only did it burn down a lot of the, the non-essential buildings, it also burned down the, their places of worship. It burned down their homes. It burned down their idols. It, it burned down much of the things that, that they loved as Romans. These great temples, they burned to the ground. Nero sensed that, they were bl- that, that the Romans were blaming him, so then he had this idea. He says, no, 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 what if we just start telling the story that the Christians did it? So all of this hatred and vitriol that they have towards me is going to be redirected towards those Christians. You see, this is the same man. This is also the same man that saw to it that his own mother was murdered. This is the same man that, that they believe, historians believe, that he had two of his wives murdered. It's this same man. This type of man, anything's possible. So when the city burned, now they blame the Christians. So then, if, if he then puts uh, Christians and he dips them in wax and he uses them as lanterns going through his, his garden, that's not too far-fetched of an idea, is it? And this one won't be either. Another one of the things that it's well known that he did was they would take animals and they would skin the animals, but they would leave the head and they would leave the, the tails and they would also leave the legs. And they would force Christians to get on all fours. Then they would sew these skins onto the Christians 
so much so that they wouldn't be able to walk on two feet that they had to crawl around on all, on, on all fours and then crawl more like crabs. And then they would send loose these ravenous dogs to go attack and maul the Christians publicly. It was that culture of which First Peter was written. There's a tendency in our culture to think that, oh my goodness, things are terrible because they've taken prayer out of the schools. Trust me, you may take a Bible out of the schools, but you're not taking prayers out of schools. As long as as teachers give tests, there's going to be kids praying in schools. Amen? Like it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So we may think that things are going terribly. We may wrestle with what goes on here in 1 Peter, but I want us to feel the weight and tension of which this letter finds its audience. And I think that it's, it's much different. I think it's worse than where we are, but yet what's happening in our culture is, is, more under, uh, is more of an undercurrent. Hopefully I can get there if I have enough time. So the big idea is they were being taught how to live, how to live this life in between, all of this hostility without losing hope. How could they do it? Let's look at verse 1, chapter 1, 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were being cho- or who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So, so for, he's like God, foreknowledge, the Spirit's work, he says for something. So now this, this for something, we're going to dig into this later. Here being called not just out of the darkness, but for something in obedience to Christ and sprinkling by his blood that a Christian is atoned for their sins are atoned for by the blood of Jesus. We know that in the scriptures, in the Old Testament and New, there had to be a shedding of blood for the atoning for people's sins. And Jesus was the propitiation. He is the final and greatest sacrifice. He is the sacrifice for, for those who would come to him. He, his sacrifice is enough. Amen? Verse 2 ends up with grace and peace be yours in abundance. So this sets the stage. Now, flip over one page, if you will, most likely one page, and let's go to the end of this letter. And in 1 Peter 5, 12, we're going to see in verse 13, there's, there's a sort of a weird thing, but I, I'm going uh, to not make it uh, strange and hopefully make it clear for you. So this is what it says. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. So in other words, he's saying, hey, Silas, help me write this. It's believed that maybe Silas wrote a lot of it, and then Peter just added a couple of like personal remarks. We don't really know, but we just know that Silas helped him. We know that Silas was, was a partner in the ministry in the early church. He says, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Look at the next four words. Stand firm or stand fast in it. 
He says, this is the true grace of God. So now he's bookending this letter, and in this letter, he's going to talk about how to live the life between, how to live the, the Christian life when ethically the things don't line up with you, they line up against you, morally things are against you, theologically things in, in the dark world may be against you. This is how you hold, this is how you hold the truth. This is how you hold and hold fast, and you, you dig into the grace of God. He says, this is how you do it. Then he says something that's peculiar in verse 13. He says, she who is in Babylon. Any guesses on who the she is? Any guesses? It is. She is the church in these Roman provinces that we're going to see in just a moment. It's the church, he says, she who is in Babylon. Any guess on who Babylon is? Rome. It's a code. It's a code. And it's a code that many people believe that this was in the scriptures that Peter is writing to this group of people. And, and, and again, there's a, he's being subversive there. He's like, she who's in Babylon, she who's in Rome. And we know that Babylon, we, we know this from the Old Testament, Babylon is, is well known for being at odds with God's people. So now there's this little code that Peter is, there, is saying, he says, she, the church, who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one, one another with, with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. I had people nervous in the 915. Are we going to start kissing people? No, we're not. This is a cultural, can I have an amen for that? Thank you. Uh, says a man in the back. Good. All right, so here's the deal. This was in their culture. This was a cultural norm for this. I, I, I've been to Israel a couple times, and I've been to Turkey a couple times. I've been to Saudi Arabia. I've been to the UAE. These things still happen every day in this culture. It is a cultural norm. It is still, this was, uh, this was written to this group of people. What we're going to see, this original letter was in modern-day Turkey. These provinces, these Roman provinces, are in modern-day Turkey. It was just part of their cultural norm. And though we're not going to adopt this because it is a cultural norm and it's not part of our cultural norms, I will say this. Which one is more personal? What we do maybe in this country where we just say, hey, and keep two, foot, two feet of distance to, to not be personal, or shake somebody's hand, or give them an awkward Christian side hug, which is my personal favorite, or even a hug, which one's more personal as what they would do, and which one would then identify a true brother or sister in Christ when you would, when you would go forth and then you, they would kiss each other on each other's cheek. And again, it was just their custom. You've seen this in the movies for sure. It still happens today. It was their cultural norm. This is not a biblical mandate. This is just a cultural norm that Peter is talking about. Let's go into and talk about these provinces. Go back a page, if you would, into... 1 Peter 1, and I don't have a whole lot of time to spend on, uh, on some of these nuts and bolts, but I want to help us with something. We at this church do not recognize the, the title of an, someone being an apostle. We're not going to identify, oh, well, that's Apostle Bill and Apostle Ted, and they had an awesome adventure. Anyway, some, some people get that later. Like, like we're not going to identify this, these people um, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure like 15 years ago. Come on, somebody. I'm not the only one here. All right. Thank you, Anthony. Bail me out. It's like these, these people, we're not going to identify these because if you were an apostle 
It meant that you had to have three qualifications, and these qualifications cannot be met today. Here are the qualifications, and I get these right from, from Acts 1, 21 through 25. You can look at it later. I'm not going to cover this ground, but I'm going to give you the three principles really quickly. To be an apostle or to be selected as an apostle, the three things were the first one. They had to have followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. Literally, they had to have literally followed Jesus in his earthly ministry. They had to have been with Jesus. Not like, oh, I've been with Jesus because I read the Bible and I have the Holy Spirit within me and now it's 2,000 years later and I can, I can be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. No, 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 They literally had been with Jesus. They, they literally, when Jesus walked, you know, and he threw up dust, his dust went on their feet. He, they had been with Jesus. Second thing is to be an apostle, they, they would have had to have seen Jesus after the resurrection. They literally would have to have seen Jesus after the resurrection. So I'm assuming even by the first two, that pretty much disqualifies all of us, right? Right? All right. So the last one is they had to have been appointed by Jesus himself. So they had to have been appointed by Jesus himself. Now, many of us can be apostolic. I know Ephesians 4 it talks about the five, the, the five, some people call it five-fold ministry. I get it. I, I, I affirm it. But I don't affirm those positions. I affirm those titles, rather. I affirm what those titles represent. So while we're not going to call somebody, hey, that's Apostle Bill or Apostle Wayne or whatever, it, what we can say is, yes, that person has the, the apostolic gift. In other words, to be sent out, a church planner, a vision caster, these people can be apostolic. I went too far into that. I'm running out of time. Now. Peter, an apostle of Jesus. Now, let me show you in this passage how, uh, how Jesus called them out. In, Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark 3, 13 through 15, this will be on the screen. It said, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he called to him those he wanted. So he called to him those he wanted. So Jesus selected, if you will, the 12. And they came to him. He appointed 12, designated them, what's the next word? Apostles that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So this was their mission. This is the power that they had had. So then when Jesus died, resurrected, he showed himself to the apostles in the upper room, an amazing story. You can read that later in Acts 1. But then also Jesus ascended. He went back to heaven. And now, the apostles were given this ability the, to be able to convey, to preach God's worth with authority and also to drive out demons. The acts were verifying the power from the word. Notice that it wasn't just the word and it wasn't just that they were just showing themselves doing these acts. It was the two things working together. They were verifying God's word, but they also had been given the spiritual authority to bring about the word, to share the gospel. And what we're not going to cover is the first name mentioned after this short passage up to verse 15 is the name Peter. And then it goes through all of the apostles. And then the last one, it says in Judas, the betrayer. So, and the one who was against Jesus. So let's go back to our passage here. Let's get, to, we're going to have to get in the weeds for a second to clarify a couple words. And then, and then we're going to uh, land the plane. 
with some, uh, some other helpful things too. So it says, to God's elect, right? Strangers in the world. And then he mentions that they're scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's all in verse 1, not verse 2. Sorry. It's believed that this was the path that the letters were supposed to take. All of these provinces were Roman provinces. They were Roman controlled, which fits the persecution from Nero. As the message would have, what had happened in Rome had spread throughout all these Roman provinces. Now it, all of this should be making sense. And now what Peter says, this is to God's elect. And uh, before I get to that, the word strangers, it introduces this, this critical and crucial idea in this letter, and it's this, that God's people are pilgrims, that they're sojourners, and that they're exiles on earth. Some of your translations actually may say those words. That's what we're supposed to be. And at the same time, holding tension to the fact that we are citizens of heaven. It's what it says in Philippians 3.20. While we are citizens of heaven, we're here, we're scattered, we're exiled, we're sojourners, and we have a purpose to fulfill. Christians whose citizenship in heaven lives, they're to live in the midst of a pagan society as aliens and sojourners, dispersed persons, but in that our thoughts should often turn toward home. Meaning that we live here in the life between of what's the eternal life that's promised when we get to be in heaven with Christ Jesus. And yet, even in the midst of this, we should be mindful and thinking about our heavenly home. Because every time we think about our heavenly home, we have more of a beam of hope and we have a beam of light that shines back down to us. So then even in the middle of darkness, we can shine light because we know there's hope because there's heaven. There's eternity with God that is coming God's people must be aliens in a world of rebels against God. We have to be. We have to be that contrast community. We have to be the exiles. We have to be the weird ones that the rest of the world scratches their head and they try to figure out. We have to be the ones that we're not weird for our sake, that we're weird for Jesus' sake. As we're standing firm on the word of God, and if we're standing firm in our relationship to Jesus Christ, and in doing so, understanding that we are aliens of this world, we are rebels, or we are, that we are standing in opposition to the rebels against God. And that is our place. So that something about us might be attractive for the lost. In this, in this passage, the, the doctrine of election is mentioned. An election or elect is, is this. It's an act of God where some people are chosen from all of mankind for himself. Election, it's an act of God where some people are chosen. This also implies that not everyone is saved. But some people are chosen from all of mankind but the reason why I share this and the reason why I wanted to, to have you view this on the screen is this. It's for himself. 
We get so displaced and we get so lost in the mission and the great commandment and the great commission that is supposed to be the very lifeblood of a Christian. We get so lost in ourselves where we can start beginning to think that this Christianity, that the all of salvation is about us, that God called us out of the darkness into his glorious light for his sake, for his glory, for his namesake. To, to not be boasters of self, but to be glorifiers of God. Continue on with this. This word elect is used in this passage. And the word elect and chosen is, using, is used excuse me, <clears throat> a couple times in this passage. And when it's mentioned, I want us to also understand the, the backdrop um, of that very important Greek word. And again, we're, we're going to have to get into the weeds a little bit, but then we're going to get out of it. And, the, and it's going to be good. So I promise that that's what we're going to do. So this Greek word for um, elect or election is the basis of it is, is the word eklektos. It's a Greek word. And it always refers to a group of people chosen by God from among a group of others who are not chosen. It's, there's 22 times in the New Testament and every time it's, it, it means the same thing. And that they're chosen for inclusion among God's people. When Peter would use this, he would, he would be saying something that, that he didn't get all caught up in, well, where's the sovereignty of God and who's going to be lost and who's going to be found? You see, they weren't asking these questions, and I think they're important questions, but they weren't lost in these questions. What they were trying to, to, to wrestle with is, hey, my friends are dying for the faith. Where's the hope in that? There have been Christians, literally, they're on stakes being covered in wax and being burned by what would be the, the powerful, more pre, actually more powerful than our president, and just in the emperor's gardens. He's like, that reality exists. He's like, where is the hope now? So Peter, he conveys this hope, and he uses this word elect, and he says, this is a group of people. You've been chosen by God from a group of others who are not chosen. Who are the ones who are not chosen? Those who are outside of the faith, he says, but you have inclusion among God's people. He says, even though you're suffering, you're not alone. Even though that, that I'm calling you to stand firm in your faith, I'm calling you to stand up, even when other people say that they're Christians, they're not standing up. He says, I'm going to call you to do these things, but I want you to know you are never alone. You've been loved by God. You've been accepted by God. Stand firm in the grace of God is what he would say at the end of this letter. And we get so caught up in this word elect, well, who's in, who's out? How about we let God decide that? Let's let God be God in this, and let's act, if we're actually people of God, let us just do what it is that we're called to do. And allow God to do what he already said that he's going to do. Not as many amens on that one, I noticed, but I get why. All right? So, now I don't want to be smug, but I do want us to, I, I want us to put the, the, the level of importance where it needs to be. Amen? It needs to be on God, and this is ultimately what this important doctrine is all about. So, the elect are recipients of, of great privilege and blessing. And the first one comes from Matthew 20, verse 16. And again, privilege and blessing for, for those who are chosen, those who are elect, those who are called out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Hey, this is, this is one of the blessings. So the, the last 
We'll, or, yeah, so the last will be first and the first will be last. We were like, well, where's the blessing in that? Does that mean I, that, that I may lose sometimes as a Christian? Absolutely. But it means ultimately that you're going to win. There, that means there are times where you're going to feel like, man, we're losing, but yet we know that we're not losing. Because what Christ has, what Christ has already given, Christ keeps on our behalf. There's another one. If you could go to the left in your Bible to Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31, we're going to look at another important element of this, and we're going to see another usage of this word elect. And I'm not going to be able to give you all of these, but I just want to look at a few of these so we create a good uh, framework of belief and even shaping our worldview so we understand the rest of the letter. Because if we just jump into this letter, we're going to say, well, where's God in this? We're, clearly, I want us to see where God is in this. So Matthew uh, 24, verse 30 and 31 says this. At, the, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is a future event that's coming. This is a prophecy of Jesus, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So he will gather his elect, that he will do this. Now, I told you we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. We're going to go to now to the right, see if I can remember my directions, to the right in your Bible into Romans. In Romans 8, 33 and 37, we're going to look at another example. But also, I want to connect some dots uh, that are necessary as well. Romans, the, the, the letter of Romans was written to the Roman Christians. So the backdrop of 1 Peter and Romans is not that different. It's not that different. We're actually going to see why in this passage. It's what it says in Romans 8, verses 33 through 37. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that. Who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Let's, let's camp out right there. It's an amazing reality to think that no matter how dark things may get where we are culturally, where we are, where our culture is morally or ethically or spiritually, that Christ is interceding on behalf of those who are elect and those who are chosen, those who have been called out of the darkness into his wonderful light. He is interceding on our behalf, even when we may feel a certain, we may feel hopeless and helpless, but the reality is Christ is interceding on our behalf. It's an amazing, amazing truth. It continues, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's the love that we need. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or, or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we, we face death all day long. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, so this is who we are. Those who've been called out of the darkness and into the light. Now we, we, we have been pulled out of the, of the brokenness of this world and now we're living in this life between the citizenship in heaven and living as exiles. What is it that we're supposed to do? We're supposed to live lives of obedience. In this short passage, there is a, a mention 
It says to the, the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And I'll, I'll break it down in this way. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, and the Son cleanses. The Father foreknows. It brings me great comfort to know that uh, I, I pray this prayer often at night, just with, with Marla and I, we pray this prayer a lot at night. And I, I pray it. And it sounds very Navy-ish, because it kind of is. It's just it's something that resonates, so this is what I pray. I pray something like, uh, just before we're getting ready to go to sleep, and I'll say, God, and I praise you, and I'm thankful that I can sleep tonight knowing that you have the watch. That you govern the night and that you govern the day. And that you're watching over the affairs of my life and of all the other lives in all of the world. And I can rest easy tonight knowing that you are sovereign. It's rooted in this reality that God foreknows. It brings me comfort knowing that God knows what's going on, that not like the gentleman in the video where he just, he saw everything in the world as just chaos. He saw that there was no order. He was like, you just need to figure out your own meaning. That's not the Christian life. That's not the Christian worldview. The Father foreknows. We rest in that. The Spirit sanctifies, not only at the point of conversion, but also throughout the rest of our lives. And the Son cleanses. He atones. For our sin. So I want to give you some practical things and then, and then I'm going to land the plane. Uh, hopefully not in a ball of flames. All right, here we go. Let's go there together. This is all rooted in this, in this simple phrase that Peter said to the Christians that he's writing to in these Roman provinces. He says, he talks about elected, he talks about you're scattered, he talks about all of that stuff that you're chosen. And he says, for, let's look at it. Verse 2, for obedience to Jesus Christ. He says the reason why is this. And now let's look at this, this idea of obedience, and we're going to land this thing on the wheels and not the belly. Here we go. Sorry, I've got a history in aviation too. You're getting it all today. Here we go. First thing, this is rooted in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. I'm not going to give you the reference. You can, um, this is homework, right? So now, now I'm giving you homework. You can look this up to verify it later. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, it, it would say this, and this is a paraphrase. Those who don't know God or obey God will be punished. Those who, who don't know God or who don't obey God will be punished. There is a consequence for actions. There's a consequence for somebody who doesn't know God. We know that, that eternally they're separated from God. But even those who, who are in Christ and whose citizenship is in heaven... There's a consequence for our disobedience. There's blessings that will not be had. There's, there's a life that we may miss here if we're not obedient. We also know that Romans 1.5, it speaks into this, that obedience comes through faith. Obedience comes through faith. We walk out and we do what it is that God is calling us to do in the midst of our society, in the midst of our workplace, in the midst of our relationships, in the midst of our marriage, and we do this with our parenting, and we do with this with the way that we vote, who we vote for and how we vote, we do this, and this obedience is rooted in faith that Jesus is who he says that he was, and he did what he says that the scriptures said that he did. And that the apostles, they built their whole lives on it. And every one, of their, every one of the apostles died believing that Jesus was the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. Every single one of them. 
And none of them started that way. That obedience comes through faith. We see this in James 2. There's three different types of faith in James 2. Starting in verse 14 and 22, you can look it up later. There's the first faith that's there. There's somebody, somebody who says, well, I have faith, but their faith doesn't have any actions. Like, there's just nothing there. It's like, oh, I believe. It's somebody saying, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but yet nothing about their life looks very Christian or biblical. In accordance with James, it would say that's a dead faith. That's not, even a, that's not a saving faith. That's a dead faith. It's a, it's a faith, oh, I believe. Well, you say, well, man, that's a little strong. I know. The next one's even stronger. So the first one's a dead faith. The second one that's mentioned there is a demonic faith. It says in that passage in James, it says, even the demons believe and they shudder. All right? Let's show of hands. Who thinks that demons are in heaven? Anyone? Anyone? No? Uh, are, are demons in heaven? Okay, so no one believes that demons are in heaven. Okay, good. Because even the demons believe and they shudder. They're not in heaven. They're not one with God. They believe that there's power and authority with Jesus. It's just they've never submitted themselves to it. That's a demonic faith. That's not a saving faith. And the last one is a dynamic faith. That means their, their faith and their actions, their faith and their works are working together. That's a dynamic faith. I love how in the scriptures, the, the reference, the word power in the New Testament is mentioned over and over and over is the word dunamis, which is it's the word power. It's also the word that we get, uh, we get from the word dynamite. It's power. When, when faith and works go together, there's power in that. It's, it's a power released in the person. I'll go through the rest of them a little quicker. The Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. We know that to be true as well. The Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. As born-again believers, we're also to move forward in our faith. Meaning that if you got saved 20 years ago, there should be obvious growth markers from 20 years ago from then to now. That's what that means. Just those growth markers of tested, faithful obedience from then to now. Also, we cooperate with God when we obey the truth and when we love one another. We actually cooperate with God when we obey the truth and we love one another. In obedience, cast out fear. And this is the very thing that we resist. This is the very thing that, that, that we get squeamish around because we're like, if I, if I get too serious about my faith, I might be rejected. What if they criticize me? What if they don't, what if they don't, you know, they don't say, wow, good job, I love the person you're becoming. What if they just kick you out? You see, the amazing thing is this. The more that you obey Christ, the more it casts out fear, the more willing you are to obey Christ. That's how that works. So then you grow to be more and more and more and more like Jesus day by day. So the call from 1 Peter is to stand firm in our faith and, and at times be weird for our faith. How can we do that? 
We can only do that because we know that we've first been loved and accepted by God. That became the very point of, of which I believe Peter was trying to address in the beginning of this letter. He says, look who you are and look whose you are. Don't get caught up in the drama around you. You live this life between this citizenship in, 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 in heaven and also the reality of life on earth. And he says, and what you need to do is obey me. And when we do that, we see the power of God released through us. Our lives are shaped in such profound ways. And I believe, and this is also by faith, I believe that even when we do this and we do this publicly and we let our faith be on display, other people will look at us and they will want the Jesus that's flowing through us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and we, God, we just offer ourselves to you and I pray on behalf of, of those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And Father, I, I do, I, I pray for them, I pray with them. Lord, we need more of you. Lord, we're not being run down right now in our culture to, to be put on stakes and burned in gardens. But we have such things as nationalism and patriotism and, and secularism and universalism. We have a bunch of things going against our faith right now. And God, we need to stand firm in the grace of God. And God, help us. Help us to be bold and to be confident, men, men and women, young men and young women, in the faith, so we can stand out and be a little weird. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.